Hey there, welcome back to the Ranching Reboot Podcast for episode number 89. I'm your host, Red Hills Rancher. This episode of the podcast sponsored by C90 Ocean Minerals, nature's most complete trace mineral salt and the one I feed to my herd. Support for this episode also provided by our totally epic patrons on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. If you'd like to join them and check out the sweet merch rewards program, click the link in the show notes. Imagine a place where you can belong to a social group centered on regenerative ag, where just you and a handful of friends can spend time together, a place that makes it easy to talk every day and hang out more often. There's text chat threads where I often stream when I'm working on the podcast or playing grazing in the office. If you'd like to come join our growing community on my Discord server, check the Ranching Reboot Paddock Facebook group for the most current link. If you're not on Facebook, either send me a message with whatever platform you follow me on or send me an email and I'll hook you up with a link to the server. This week on the show, we talk about drought management strategies, we talk about fire a little bit, I drop a teaser for a future guest, and we dive into quantifiable benefits of putting livestock back on the land. Caitlin Hebert is a livestock and ranching consultant with the Noble Research Institute in Ardmore, Oklahoma. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? So it is Caitlin with two eyes, not one. Yeah, it is. It is. I'm glad I didn't have a chance to screw that up yet. I uh, I told a lady at Starbucks one time, she was like, how do you spell your name? And I was like, a C with two eyes. And she went C-A-I-I. <laughs> I was like, I've, I've given up on the world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that'd be uh, that'd be rough. The worst I get at Starbucks is, is that with an I or a Y? Yeah, there's there's like 17 ways to spell my name, but I like to tell everybody that mine's the right way, so. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons that my, my, my parents picked my name is because you can't like add a D-Y onto it. You can't like it. it it's That's tough to shorten it. It's tough to do anything with it. And it's pretty easy to understand how to spell it. There's really only two ways to spell it. I don't know how I stayed Caitlin my whole life. I don't know how I didn't end up Katie, but if someone calls me Katie, I give them a dirty look because I'm just like, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't work. So, uh, well, welcome to the show. Um, so tell us, tell us who you are and uh, where you're at. All right. So um, I'm Caitlin Hebert. I am in Ardmore, Oklahoma at Noble Research Institute. So um, I have been here for four and a half years now. Um, came here straight out of grad school and um, conned them somehow into uh, letting me hang out. And so, yeah, I am a um, agricultural consultant here. So I hired on as a livestock consultant, um, just specializing in beef cattle management and just ranch management. Um, and I've definitely, I guess, branched out over the years. So Noble's changed a little bit and we're no longer, or I guess I, I no longer am specialized. So I'm no longer a livestock consultant so much as just a grazing range consultant. Um, and I'm really enjoying that piece of it. Okay. Well, before we get into what's going on with Noble today and now, um, so you're, you're not from Southern Oklahoma, are you? I am not. Where are you from? I'm always the first to correct people on that. Um, so I'm originally from deep West Texas. So the Big Bend kind of area, um, Fort Davis, Alpine, Balmeray, that kind of area, if anyone knows where that's at. Um, my dad's a, a cow-calf ranch manager. So I grew up on a ranch down there. And then in 2005, we moved to Southeastern New Mexico. 
um, between Roswell and Tatum, New Mexico. So about two hours directly west of Lubbock. And that's where my parents are at. And they're still there. So you know what it's like to be where it's really dry. I do. (laughs) I do. I moved to Oklahoma. I moved here and I took so many pictures because I moved here in March and I had never seen so much green in my life. And I was, I was completely out of my element. I bet. Yeah. I bet that was probably pretty wild. So where'd you go to college at? Um, I did my bachelor's degree at West Texas A&M in Canyon, Texas. So we're on Amarillo. And then I went to New Mexico State University, Las Cruces. And that's where I did my master's degree. Okay. Down on the border. All kinds of fun stuff. You ever oh, spend yeah. any time where, where, you know, where it rains? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> I would go visit my grandparents in San Antonio. And I thought it was the swampland. Like <laughs> I had never been east at all this was east for me southern oklahoma is east for me yeah well ardmore gets i don't know what do they get probably close to 40 inches 30, rain. yep yep about 36 37 inches wow yeah that's that's way more than we, we normally get here it's probably it's about four times what i've gotten in the last year <laughs> yeah where so where i grew up in um in west texas our average down there was like i think probably like nine inches and then where my parents are in new mexico there's their average is supposed to be 11 inches. Um, but they've had that, you know, in a year's time, probably twice in the past 12 years. So normal is just a setting on a dryer, I suppose. That's a really good way to put that. <laughs> I can't remember where, where I heard that first. I probably heard it from my dad first. I don't know where he heard it. I'm pretty sure he didn't make it up. <laughs> he might've given him some credit. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Something coming up on the calendar in January, the third week of January, the 18th and 19th, I have been asked to moderate a panel at Soil Health about how to manage year-round and plan for drought. Would you like to be on that panel with me, Caitlin? I think that would be great, Brian. I I appreciate the offer. (laughs) But really, I'm flattered that you asked. Well, I... I think we need to have a, a greater diversity of voices. Uh, the conference organizer, Jessica Nad and I, we don't, we've, we've been talking about it. We've been throwing some names around and, you know, full disclosure, like Caitlin and I, we already, we already had this set up. So that wasn't, that wasn't a surprise. She had to ask permission from the boss, but uh, <laughs> you know, some of the other names thrown around, I was kind of like, you know, let's, let's, let's try to diversify our voices here. You know, let's, let's maybe not have, a panel of white guys up at the front, you know, let's, let's at least try to get, you know, let's try to get some females. Let's maybe try to get, you know, somebody that's not a fat old white guy on a panel to talk about this stuff. So that's uh, one of the reasons we really wanted to get you and wanted to, wanted to make sure Noble had a seat at that table too, because Noble's a great voice on the Southern Plains. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. I definitely think that there's a need for a diversification of voices, but just experiences and perspectives. Um, and unfortunately, for a long time, I think a lot of people who had the, the most voice in the industry just had similar experiences and similar perspectives. So then it's really difficult to get lots of different angles. And so, um, you know, if you get people from lots of different backgrounds, you know, it's, it's really it makes for interesting conversation, I think, which is why TikTok has been so fun. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that just a few minutes ago, how, you know, I, I very rarely see stuff that you post on Facebook, but I see your stuff on TikTok all the time. And it's like, we have these different echo chambers that we operate in. 
And that kind of ties in with what you were just saying about, you know, we need, you know, a lot of times you go to these conferences and it's, you know, the same group of people talking about the same stuff over and over and over and mm -hmm. over. And yeah, we do need to get some diversity of voices and we're all in danger of being trapped in an echo chamber, like 100%. Yeah. And there's some social media platforms out there that are better about breaking those barriers, breaking those echo chambers up and showing you, you know, diverse or even opposing opinions or viewpoints. And um, there's some that absolutely are not. Yeah, no, I would absolutely agree with that. And, you know, TikTok's been a new venture for Noble and I kind of just kind of sink or swim as well. Like, all right, let's see how this goes. But I have learned so much um, because I think TikTok, like you said, does they do a really great job of, I think what's cool, I, I call the community that's on their region talk. Like, I don't know, it's just kind of like, you know, the, the same kind of, I guess, you know, dozen or 15 people that are all kind of sharing ideas and videos back and forth. And what's really cool is that, you know, you have kind of the group that's from North, South Dakota, Wyoming, and then you have people from Vermont and Maine, and then you have people from down South, you know, where we're at. And that's really, really neat because that's kind of a peer network that, that formed by itself, you know, that everyone was just seeking ideas and you have such a diversification regionally and otherwise. And that's the first time I've seen that so organically on social media. Yeah, um, I, I absolutely have to agree with that. And, you know, there's something to be said that, you know, like minds kind of have a tendency to flock together and like philosophy has a tendency to flock together. And yeah, I, I'm thinking of the, of the, the sixth oil health principle that Noble added a few years ago that know your context. And that's something that's become very, very apparent in the last six months is there is a lot of folks in this industry, in this business, not just, not just the cattle business, but you know, in the livestock agricultural sector as a whole that don't understand even their neighbor's context or what that guy halfway across the country is dealing with management challenges for weather for the year. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And we kind of garnered that idea from understanding ag. Understanding ag is the one that kind of pioneered making context a sixth soil health, sixth soil health principle. Um, and I think it's a really good idea because even though it's not necessarily, it's, you know, it's not necessarily a soil health principle, it's just a life principle, but keeping it in the forefront of your mind, whenever you're thinking about soil management and any kind of management is important because I feel like a lot of the times we can't see the forest for the trees. Um, and taking a step back and, and getting away from the trees and seeing the big picture, I think, you know, just knowing that context is one of those principles, make sure that you're always doing that. Not being able to see the forest for the trees in relationship to, uh, pasture management. I think there's some guys that don't even know they're in the woods. Oh yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. I completely agree. It's like, you just start following a trail and before you know it, you look up and you're just like, where did I end up here? You know? Yeah. Or, uh, <laughs> like a post turtle, you know, a, a box turtle on top of a post. Yeah. That's exactly he, right. You don't know how he got there. He doesn't know how he got there and he doesn't know what he's doing and neither do you. <laughs> that's, that's right. But he's doing great. Whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. He's thriving. I mean, it's obviously great. Good for him. Yeah. So what, uh, since we're on the subject, what are the rest of the soil health principles? I mean, I know you probably weren't prepared for a pop quiz today. <laughs> I know. Like, what is this? You're going to grill me? Um, all right. So in no particular order, um, 
keep just do the best room. you can. I'll get all the hate mail anyway. Okay. All right. That'd be great. Yeah. If you could just filter that through you and not send it to me, I would appreciate that a lot. Perfect. <laughs> so one of them is going to be um, keeping a living root in the ground. Um, one is going to be, um, they say minimize disturbance. Um, I like to say minimize unnatural disturbance. I would rather use optimize disturbance. Um, I like that. Integrate livestock. Um, and then diversity, just incorporate diversity. Let's see. So we have, I always lose it. So, oh, and keep the, keep the soil covered. So yep. those are going to be your other five on top of context. I, I think, what do you think is the sticking point for a lot of guys? Do you think it's the, the reduced disturbance, which is not using tillage? Do you think it's the living root? Do you think it's return livestock to the land? That's interesting. Um, I feel like, I feel like keeping a, a living root in the soil can be a sticking point for people returning livestock to the land generally isn't because people can see the financial benefit from that. So if you're talking about agricultural industry in general, I don't think normally you have a sticking point there. Um, the general public may, the government may, but as far as the agricultural industry goes, I don't think that's so much an issue. I would see, I would say keeping the living root is really difficult for a lot of people to do because that takes an investment that a lot of the times they can't really see the value in that. Um, and I think that's the other thing is that all these principles, they have a value that they provide and finding a way to quantify that to where producers can see that, to where ranchers can see that. And, you know, anybody can see that environmental agencies, the public can see the, the value to where we can quantify it. I feel like that's going to be really key in kind of removing the sticking points um, because keeping a living root in the soil, you know, you think living, you know, I think about up north, I kind of think about where, you know, where Trevor's at or where Kendall's at and keeping a living root in January. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, and well, it, even if it's, even if it's dormant because of winter, right. native plant, you know, still should be able to survive, you know, would be able to survive through the winter. And that root is still there holding the, holding the soil. It is. If you leave, you know, if you leave biomass above ground, you're going to have soil armor. You're going to have shade, which is going to help, you know, prevent, you know, moisture loss and break and up the wind the, patterns and yeah that's the, that's the keeping the soil covered piece i think you know um <clears throat> and that can be tough for a lot of people too i think that's a difficult one because you know I, every time you start talking about thatch or you start talking about bale grazing people get really worried about wasted forage and so the whole idea that it's not wasted it can be difficult um for some people to to wrap their minds around because again value right you paid money for something and conventionally, if that, if, if that product that you paid money for is not going into your cattle, who are then in turn going to create a product that you get paid with, you know, they have a hard time understanding where that value goes. And I think that's a challenge for the industry right now and for research organizations like Noble and others to, to really put a dollar value to those things. Yeah, you know, we're talking about, you know, quantifiable data. Man, we're only 15 minutes in. We're throwing around terms like quantifiable data. I know. Uh, Have we lost everybody yet? <laughs> I hope I, I promise I'm a lot more simple minded than this. I hope they're still with us. Um, <laughs> oh, one of the one of the quantifiable data questions that has plagued me and my dad since the late 80s. 
what is grass worth? Hmm. You know, what, what is a pound of native, native range worth? You know, we, we know what a bushel of corn's worth. We know what a ton of hay's worth. Those are well-established markets. Yeah. But what's a pound of native range grass worth still growing in a pasture? Nobody knows that. It's, I think it's, it's not... tough. It's tough too, because like, what is it worth, you know, when, when it's being consumed versus what is it worth left standing? You know, what is its value when returned back to the soil? So like the value of standing forage, I feel like that's really difficult. I feel I feel, you know, if you were to give me an afternoon, I would be able to sit down and, and quantify, you know, at different times a year, what a pound or however much per acre of native forage is worth from a livestock perspective. But when you think about from an ecological perspective, what is the value? That's a whole, that's a whole other ballgame. Cause then you start talking about carbon sequestration and water infiltration and what's the value of effective rainfall. And I think it gets a lot more complicated than the value of a, a more effective rainfall is your plants don't suffer your plants in your pasture don't suffer as much in drought right but then what does that equate to financially what is the fiscal value of that if you were to put a dollar value to it what is it and i think that gets really because that's what draws people's attention right 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 show them that you know it's not just about going out and doing cross fencing and, you know, some water development yeah. to double your stocking rate, but like, these are the actual tangible benefits. And this is, this is the math of how it works out. And this is the grazing math of how it works. Right. Out. Like, yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't always like to talk about TikTok and as much time as I spend on there, you know, on this platform, but why not? Um, <laughs> you know, it, the whole grazing math, that whole grazing math TikTok that I did about, you know, cost to carry based on feed cost, you know, it was really rough general numbers. And apparently that kicked off the whole hay war thing. Yeah, it's all your fault. It's, it's your fault. all my fault. Um, I Am I even known as the yelling regenerative guy? Is that me? <laughs> or is that... <laughs> I think it's still you. I think your title may be slipping. I think you need to get heated about something pretty quick um, before we all forget. <laughs> Oh goodness. Uh, well, give me some time, but so it was, uh, I, I think that that, that whole comment thread and the whole fallout from, from Hay War, it really kind of gives me the impression that there's a lot of folks in this business in this industry that a don't know what their cows weigh, B don't know how much a cow eats every day and C they don't know how to figure that cost. Yeah, ab absolutely. And so it's like, for example, whenever I started at Noble, we did a lot of, you know, I did a lot of kind of speaking events with extension and just kind of traveling. And then we did a lot of educational events here, just lots of little ones here and there. And it got to where I had a set of slides that talked about that, um, that talked about, you know, how much cattle weigh and how that influences how much they consume and then how that plays out um, financially and into your stocking rate. And I used those slides in almost every single presentation I did, regardless of whether the presentation was going to be about that, because it always provided context, right. right. Um, and got people thinking, but it was always the, the thing that people took the most notes on. 
And it was always a thing that grabbed their attention because again, I think you can quantify things and that seems to really grab people's attention. And I think there's a lot of numbers driven people in ag because you're number crunching a lot. And so anything that you can quantify, you know, really gets people's attention, but you're exactly right. They've either just not thought about it or they're not sure how to get there. Um, and it's really eye-opening whenever they see that. So I was just sitting here thinking about measuring grass and, you know, weighing grass to estimate how much grass is in a pasture. Mm -hmm. Did they teach you how to do that at college? Not in my college. So, um, an interesting fact about me when I did my bachelor's degree, I was actually pre-vet Okay. and decided halfway through that degree. I didn't want to do that anymore, but I wanted to maintain my momentum and so, um, fulfilled that and then went to Mexico state and my master's is, in, is in ruminant nutrition. Okay. So all of my classes were based on, you know, environmental physiology and carbohydrate metabolism. And I did take a range cow nutrition and that was the closest thing I got to like a range class in grad school. And I tell everybody <clears throat> if I could do my, my academic career over again. I would have gotten a bachelor's in ag business because I took one business class in my, my bachelor's degree. Um, and I, I really regret that because I was really focused on chemistries and things. And then when I went to grad school, I wish I had gotten a range degree and then taken some nutrition classes, um, whether of my own accord or, or whatever that may be, um, because that is if you're going to be in agriculture, if you're going to be in, in ranching, I mean, you can, you can know nutrition all day long, but if you don't know how to get it in them, it doesn't matter. Point, point taken. And okay. So you mentioned you just had a little, a little bit of, of training about range cow nutrition. Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to kind of explore that a little bit. Like so we taught, we're, we're kind of talking about measuring grass, you know, mm -hmm. weighing grass, which, you know, we'll circle back to that one later. Um, from a nutritionist standpoint, what does the, what is the industry, what's really known about how cow, how to measure how cows perform on non-native range? I don't know uh, what I'm asking. Do you, do you understand what I'm trying to ask? On non-natives, you're just talking about like on introduced forages and. No, on crop. native range. Oh, on native range. Oh, like, very little. Oh man. <laughs> and, and, and that's really is strange. Okay. Because, you know, let's, let's talk about like industry myths, industry things that are commonly held to, to be true in the industry that, you know, our, our cows spend three quarters of their lives on pasture and it's just the last couple of months that they go to the feedlot. Okay. So if they're spending three quarters of their lives in the pasture, why don't we know anything about pasture nutrition? Because we have pushed and pushed levels of production that are unsustainable, unsustainable on pasture. Um, and everyone would rather feed it into them from off the ranch than grow it on the ranch. Um, because we have been duped into believing that is more profitable. So I, I think that that's a large percentage of the reason why. Um, but also it is difficult to quantify. So a few years ago... <clears throat> Uh, there was someone working at Noble, uh, Dr. Ryan Walker, and he is now with Texas A&M. Uh, and he was working with David Lawman from OSU. We have some growth safe facilities here at Noble. 
and they what were wanting, I'm sorry, what? Grow safe facilities. What are those? All right. So grow safe facilities mm-hmm. are, they are a, a facility essentially where you can put EID tags into cattle's ears and they come up and when they come up to eat, when they come up to stick their head in the bunk, um, there is a reader that reads that EID tag and it sends that information to, you know, a data storage facility. Um, so it weighs the bunk before they put their head in. And then when they take their head back out, so you can, you can quantify exactly how many pounds of feed each individual animal is consuming throughout the day. And they also have this for water. So you can know how many times animals are going to water, how many, how much water they're drinking, um, how many, you know, eating events that they're having and how many times they eat each time. And so it's a really neat research tool. The problem is it has to be done in a dry lot. (laughs) And so they did get it. This is usually used for, um, concentrate diets to figure out, you know, different gains on different diets. Right. And they got really interested in trying to quantify forage efficiency. And so feeding just straight for it, which was hay, it was, you know, feeding high quality hay versus low quality hay and, and looking at some differences there. Um, and I think that was the closest that I have seen to truly understanding intake, but how applicable is it whenever cattle are just standing in a pen with a buffet in front of them for three weeks versus having to graze? Um, so the answer to your question, that was a long-winded answer, is that, you know, they're trying to, to quantify that, but it's, it's difficult to measure. I can imagine it's incredibly difficult to measure and get any sort of consistent results that would be widely accepted by the peers. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I'll, I'll tell you about some research that was done at, um, and I'm probably losing everybody by saying research so many times, but I found this fascinating. (laughs) So when I was at New Mexico State University, they have a ranch in Corona, which is absolute desolate desert. And um, they were doing a study trying to feed different levels of protein to gestating cattle and and looking at that progeny. But they had a cohort of animals that were grazing the same pasture, they were grazing together. Three times a week, the grad student would pen them and she would supplement them. And some of them were being fed like a high protein supplement and some were being fed low protein, but they were getting the same volume. So they're getting the same amount of supplement three times a week. And she would separate them and feed them and then turn them back out. And they wanted to, you know, look at the differences. And I think one was being fed like 100% of NRC recommendations. One was like 70% or something. So then they did rumen evacuations where they have a rumen cannula. They can go in empty the rumen out, turn those animals out, let them graze. And then in 90 minutes or however long they bring them back up, take those contents and look. And the animals that were being fed a low protein supplement were selecting a higher quality diet in the pasture, even though they were grazing the same pasture and they were in the same herd. And so there are these like internal feedback mechanisms that are happening in cattle where you know, as, as hard as we can try to kind of control things, you know, the, the body has the last say. And so that's an example of something that make it, makes it difficult to understand the performance of cattle on native pasture because they compensate every time there's environmental changes or, or otherwise. Good stuff. I, and that, uh, I would say my observations will back that up, that, you know, like I haven't 
started supplementing protein yet. We're recording uh, mid-October. I saw that it started supplementing protein soon, real soon, <laughs> real yeah. soon. Um, I've been in the current paddock that I'm in for about five days. Don't judge me. I've got a hundred cows and a hundred acres. Like they're not hurting it in five days, trust me. But I can tell um, probably about yesterday, they started running out of anything with any punch. And yeah. now, they're, now they're eating the lower quality cured out grasses and there's nothing down in the bottoms. There's, you know, they've got all the green cleaned up and they're, they've been made a pass through the Forbes and now they're, they're, they're hungry. They're wanting some protein. Um, yeah. So I've got to decide if I'm going to move them real soon or go throw out a couple of tubs in the next couple of days, in the next day. So that's the choice I'm at. And I know that when I, like, so last year I fed this same herd cows alfalfa. And it got down to the last, oh, probably the last 90 days of the season. I was only feeding about one bale every three or four days. And that's a 1600 pound five by five bale. Unrolling it, making it go as far as I could. And if I ended up with a wad that wouldn't unroll, I'd just back up and throw it down a canyon into a bunch of cedar trees and let them go find it. Yeah, have at it. And, you know, I, you notice almost immediately that, you know, after they, as soon as they get some protein in their system, they're going to go find some of those taller stems for the big bulk. Mm -hmm. So they can really, you know, so they can really get full room. In. And I've definitely noticed that and uh, definitely going to be looking for it again when I start hauling protein out this year and try to get, try to at least get some evidence of that or something. I mean, it's, it's not something you can really make a 12 minute YouTube video about and show. I don't think, at least I, I don't, I haven't figured out how to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's, it's really interesting because whenever you're supplementing protein, like it's the whole idea of, are you feeding the cow or feeding the bugs? And I would argue that in the wintertime, you're feeding the bugs more often than not and enabling them to digest that stuff that you're talking about. And it's really neat to see how their grazing behavior changes once they are equipped to be able to graze that effectively. Yeah, for sure. And okay. So we're talking about wasted forage in terms of feeding. Like I hate that term. <laughs> I I don't particularly like it either. There's spoilage, which is spoilage in the bale. Yes. You know, decrease feed quality and you lose so so much percent every year. That's fine. But when you feed the bale, it's got two purposes. You're either A, feeding it to your cows, or you're using your cows to cycle that biomass into the soil to add nutrients to your soil. Right. And you know, during the whole hay war thing, like I kind of logged off for a while and didn't check messages. It's like, yeah, I'm, I can't, I don't have the middle. You, you went dark. You started this whole thing <laughs> and then you left us in the trenches. It's what you did. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. Like, I had to go I, find my referee suit. It was like deep in my closet. I just decided that I needed to reserve that mental energy for something else in my life. And that was I just, wise. <laughs> yeah. I'll try not to leave you guys hanging out to dry. <laughs> just joking. Um, <clears throat> but I think one thing that really needs to be said is, you know, there's two prices that are acceptable to pay for hay. You know, there's the price where it's a substitute diet for your cows. Mm -hmm. And there's a price that you're paying to import those nutrients to your farm. Right. And, you know, it, in some situations with highly degraded soil, 
I could see feeding 50% more than the cows would eat and rolling it out and trying to make them stomp it into the ground. And then you don't keep moving that strip onward and onward and onward, keep moving that feeding location. I could see something like that. And I don't know that I would call that waste. Right. I, I mean, either. what I would call waste is putting a bale in a ring feeder in the same spot in the pasture for six months. Like I would, I, there's a lot of waste there. Yeah, I agree. And I think that if you feed more than they're going to eat, there's, there's always going to be waste if you're feeding excess to what they're going to eat in one sitting. Right. And like, you know, feed one bale to a hundred cows. It's like four pounds. <laughs> you know, they're getting barely, you know, three, four pounds of hay. And that's all they're going to get. And they know they've got to get in there and get it. Right. And they don't leave anything. And a lot of times I'll try to unroll in, like, I'll go to the back corner of the pasture. You know, I'll spend 10 minutes bouncing through in that heavy ass feed truck, go to the back corner of the pasture where it's six, seven foot tall, big blue stem. There hasn't been a cow hoof in five years and I'll unroll it in that. And then you come back a couple days later, the strip where you unrolled the bale doesn't look great. I mean, it looks a little hammered, but then they eat everything else around there. It pulls into that area and they get that shot of protein. And then they go out and they're like, oh, well, I can go eat this stuff now since I'm here. I might as well. Yeah, might as well since she was. <laughs> yeah, we, um, and we, we supplemented, um, with some alfalfa last year, um, especially at, at coffee ranch, we decided to try and supplement with alfalfa. And we had an interesting experience with that because we come back to context, right? Um, the bales that we were able to find because hay got difficult to find were round bales. And we did not have a way to feed round bales there. We didn't have um, a hay bed there, like an unroller bed. <clears throat> okay. And so we decided to, uh, to use a bale processor because what we did have from, we used to kind of have like a kind of like a grow yard facility kind of where we would put stalker cattle. Yeah, um, I, I know about it. I'm not judging you guys. <laughs> well, so we are finding ways to repurpose there you go. You know, the equipment that we have. So we're like, we'll, we'll just use this bale processor to process these bales and to be able to feed. Um, and for us, that was not super effective because whenever you're processing that, Hey, you get a lot of dust and I think you lose a lot of leaf material um, not so much, even just in the air, but just in the ground, it gets, you know, stepped into the ground. They just miss it. It becomes, you know, really kind of soft and light. And so we kind of had that issue. And then also coffee ranch, you talk about topography. Um, there was where, places I'm sorry, where is, where is coffee ranch? It's right on the red river, right? Like the red river is our South boundary. So okay. it is about 10 miles West or not even quite that far of Marietta. Oklahoma, which is 15 miles north of Texas, but the south boundary of Coffee Ranch is the Red River. Okay. And so um, there's some some pretty rough country back in there. And that ranch was also, it was not grazed for about 15 years. And you talk about, you talk about brush and um, a lot of woody growth, but there's canyons and rocks and ravines and all sorts of stuff. So there's places where we'd be grazing and you would have to drive all the way around just to get that tractor and that bell processor so where you needed it. Um, it was not <clears throat> super mobile <laughs> and it took us three to four times as long to feed cattle every day. 
um, if you were trying to supplement. And so, you know, I would, now we have a bail bed this year, but last year we didn't. And so, you know, we were cussing it, but it was interesting because the cattle did not perform nearly as well as we expected them to. And I think that processing had a lot to do with that. Interesting. Interesting. And I don't think people, everyone would have the same experience if you didn't have, you know, topography issues. And if you, you know, didn't have wet winters or, you know, if you had a really great, good feeding ground, you know, I don't think you would maybe have nearly those issues, but, but we did. And so, you know, I think us being able to just unroll bales this year would, you know, be a lot different. Okay. I was just, you know, I, I was trying to think and and put that, you know, and, and relate that to my experience last year. And yeah, I, I definitely feel that there's, you can't get there from here. <laughs> you, know, you might be able to throw a baseball over there, but yep. you got to drive two and a half miles to get there. Well, there was places that it would have been a two mile drive and we ended up having to drive like eight miles all the way around the ranch just to get to where those cows were. Oh, that's rough. Yeah, it was. And then you think about the, the, not only the time and the labor, but the fuel involved with that. And you go, did I save any money? And I don't think we did. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, so. it's not just the cost of the feed. It's the right. cost of the feeding, the tractor starts, the manpower, Absolutely. the diesel fuel, the spare parts, you know, those feed mixers, those grinders, you know, they're not available for $5 on every street corner. Right. Yep. And they're not cheap when they break either. Yeah, we had it. We, we you know, we decided to make use of it in this year. Um, and we have started supplementing where we're at. Um, we started supplementing a little bit of protein and we're feeding, I mean, like a pound ahead a day of, of cubes, but, um, we, we wanted to start a little bit early and get a head start on them instead of having to really throw it at them. You know, we we're trying to get some condition on them before things truly went dormant. Cause we've been dry for sure. Everyone's been dry. Who hasn't, <laughs> uh, people East of us. That's who has it. That's true. Dang you chip. But then, but then they'll be like, well, it hasn't rained in eight days. We're in a drought. <laughs> I used to make fun of those people. I really did. <laughs> but then, you know, we've got guys like uh, Morgan up in Vermont. It's already snowed up there. You know, it's I know. already snowing in Montana and Idaho. Yeah. It's wild what everybody contends with. Yeah. And we just had our first freeze last night. So that's. Did you really? We didn't quite freeze. We got close. It's supposed to freeze tonight, I think. 29. It was yep. 29 down here at the house this morning. Uh, but by the time I got out to the ranch, which was. Um, not exactly at sunrise. Uh, the morning chill had, uh, I didn't notice any frost. There yeah. wasn't any ice anywhere. Um, we didn't drain irrigation or garden hoses. That's the hard freeze that comes in about another 10 to 10 to 14 days. Okay. Yeah. We're right on par for when we're, we're supposed to get ours. So, um, we first, usually we get our first freeze middle of October. So I think our date is like 14th or 15th October is when we normally get it. So we're, yeah, we're right on schedule. I just wish we'd get back on schedule for some moisture. <laughs> yeah, we, we had a little bit of rain actually on Sunday. Thankfully, it was about time, but we got um, oh, down there where a lot of the, our ranches are in Love County, um, got between one and a half and two inches. So that was a sight for sore eyes. Okay. All right. So we, we've chased some rabbits. Um, circling back to Noble. I don't think we ever really talked about what Noble is and what Noble does. All right. So <clears throat> Noble Research Institute used to be just the Noble Foundation. And the Noble Foundation does still exist. Um, it was founded in 1945. 
um, our founder was um, Lloyd Noble. And he at the time was a pilot. And so essentially it was founded because he was flying back and forth over the Southern Great Plains during the Dust Bowl. And he saw what was happening from the air and he recognized why and um, recognized that there was a need for soil health education to farmers and ranchers. And so um, he pulled all of his assets and created the, uh, the Noble Foundation. And it started solely as a soil consultation kind of um, foundation and it at no cost to producers. And so um, it branched out from there. And we got into research and education and consultation and all the good things. Um, and then here a few years ago, I'm not sure, probably eight years ago now, um, the Noble Foundation and the Noble Research Institute were segregated from each other. So um, the education, research, all of that piece of it is the institute. And then we have the philanthropic side, which is the, um, is the Noble Foundation. And so what we do is um, we are focused on regenerative uh, practices. So we're focused on the soil and we're focused on the land and restoring the health back to the land and to our soils and doing that in a way that producers can be profitable. And so um, we are currently in a pause right now of education and consultation as we're regrouping and trying to build something that's going to be really impactful. Um, and so currently don't have any offerings because I know people are wanting to know about that um, and excited to get that stuff off the ground next year. But um, yeah, that's, that's what we do. So we have um, about 14, a little over 14,000 acres of working ranches. Um, we have cow herds. We recently got into sheep and goats. And so we have small ruminants running with our beef cattle as well. <clears throat> we run all of our ranches as working ranches, but um, we also utilize them for research purposes, demonstration purposes, so that we can show what we're doing. Okay. One, one thing that somebody out there is listening to this is probably wondering is, are the ranches profitable? And I'm going to ask that in the context of are the ranches profitable from the standpoint that they would support the labor unit, you know, the labor units and then, and the overheads that are, that are there on that ranch. Yeah. So with, with the income from livestock as I guess is what I'm asking. And you can, you can answer as little or as much of that as you like. I would say, and I can't necessarily speak historically because I've been here four years. Right. Right. Um, but I'll say right now, um, our primary goal in the ranches is to be able to explore things within kind of this regenerative landscape and, and things that, that people are wondering about and to be able to demonstrate to producers what that looks like from a profitability or financial economic side and also ecological. And so um, I get all the time and I actually, I saw a video the other day online where someone was saying, you know, oh, Noble has, you know, this multi-million dollar budget. <clears throat> and I think that can be misconstrued as we're not relatable. And I understand where people get that idea from, but I think there's a difference a between spending money on research to answer questions right. and spending that multi-million dollar budget on operations to underwrite, you know, cows, right. the sheep, the goats or whatever else. And I would say our primary goal of the ranches is to be able to answer questions, to address challenges, because there's a lot of people out there that say, oh, you know, I, I think, you know, this may be really neat, but I, I can't take that risk right now. Noble can assume that risk, 
And we can assume that risk and we can track, we have the bandwidth and we have the labor to be able to track, you know, the, the outcomes of that, of that certain research question. So um, we can track the economics of it. We can track the ecological, we can track, you know, livestock, and we can compile all that data. And then on the other side of that research question, be able to say, okay, you know, this is, this is what we have. And we, then you can, we can draw a conclusion or someone can draw the conclusion for themselves. Yeah. That was, that was a really great idea. And, and the goal is to just be really transparent, um, with everything that we're going to be, we're going to be doing on the ranches. Um, and there's some, some big grant funded research that's going on on those ranches right now. Um, and a lot of, a lot of ecological research from a, a metrics and monitoring side. So, um, so to answer your question, are they profitable right now in that the livestock production could sustain all the labor that goes into them? No, but that's because we have more overhead than the average producer whenever you're looking at the research demands of those ranches. I imagine it's it's an interesting management challenge to balance biological and ecological goals with profitability. Yeah. And I guess maybe maybe it ought to be said that some of the ranches that you guys have aren't necessarily, wouldn't necessarily be profitable or, or aren't large enough to be profitable? I wouldn't say that okay. um, because, well, I guess we have a couple of properties that maybe you could say that about them. Um, and and not, so something that may interest a lot of people, we have a lot of pecan orchards. So pecan production is something that has, is a really rich part of, of our history of Noble's history. Um, and we have a couple of pecan, pecan specialists here at Noble. Wait, wait, so, wait, wait. Are you telling me that I can buy a bag of pecans that say Noble Research Institute on them and eat them? If you're very, very nice, I might bring some to you in January. I really like pecans. I really Do like you. Yes. Good to know. All right. Um, that just gives me uh, some ammunition for bribery moving forward. <laughs> but so we have pecan orchards um, and we graze those pecan orchards and we're actually doing research moving forward with um, kind of regenerative management of pecans, which is really kind of a new and interesting thing. Um, so I wouldn't say that they're not big enough to be profitable at all, <clears throat> but I'll give you an example. The, the ranch that I have the most, I guess, understanding and context around is Coffee Ranch. I've spent a lot of time out at Coffee Ranch and that ranch was left pretty much just dormant when I say that there was no grazing at all with the exception of a couple of Bermuda grass traps up front um, for about 15 years and where we live if you aren't managing land the succession will run you over <laughs> and that's what, what will happened. happen yeah yeah and it did and what was really really neat was uh, I guess three or four years ago when Jeff Goodwin was still working here um, Clark Roberts who is now the manager at Coffee Ranch and Jeff Goodwin and really myself kind of teamed up and tackled that. And, and Jeff was instrumental in it. Um, and I give Clark Roberts a lot of props because he says something that I think is pretty profound. He says, a lot of people would look at that country and looked at that ranch and they were intimidated and all they saw were challenges. And he says, all I saw was opportunity. Um, and a lot, I think they didn't graze that, that ranch because it kind of got out of hand and it, it got a little scary to craze. People were like, you turn cattle out there, you're never getting them back. Um, there's a lot of places that you just cannot go in a side-by-side -side or horseback or other. And 
you know, it just took some people who were really willing to, to take that on and tackle it. And there's been a huge transformation out there and it's been really, really neat to see, but because of kind of that neglect that that ranch had for a long time, there was a lot of intensive management that had to be done in order to kind of right the ship. And so we've done a lot of mulching. We've gone in and dosed and put in fences. We've had to put in water infrastructure, um, just to get things back to where they were manageable again. And I keep bringing up, I know Jeff, I know you're listening to this, but I bring him up a lot because I learned, I, I came in, into Noble as a livestock person, right? Like a classically trained nutritionist. Everything I've learned about ecology and range, I learned while at Noble. And it was because I was surrounded by the right people. Um, and Jeff was one of those people, but he, ha he has a saying that sometimes you have to kill the devil to find the Lord. And I think that's the situation we were in at coffee. Um, he, 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 he told me one time, he's like, you can't kill a mesquite tree with soul health. And, um, he's exactly right. So we were in a situation where, you know, sometimes you have to write the ship in order to move forward. And a lot of the times that's a pretty strong financial investment. So I've driven, I've been down 35 and I've been driving up and down 35 my whole life. Like yeah. I'll date myself since the mid nineties. Instead, now we're go back and forth down to Texas to race go-karts. And we're talking, I'm, I'm, we're going to talk about brush encroachment because you just kind of talked about it. And it's a very real threat everywhere on the plains, everywhere on, you know, from, from Montana, Idaho, Minnesota, Texas, Louisiana, New Mexico. Like if you're in that big ass rectangle, brush encroachment is a problem. Yeah. especially if you're on the high plains and like I'm on the edge of it. I mean, and my family has worked since the late eighties, mid eighties to, to try to reduce our cedar tree canopy cover on this place and keep it under control. Oh, driving up and down 35. Like there's just it, it, everything between Oklahoma city and Dallas is either a building, a house, or a cedar tree now, it seems like. So one of the big tool, one of the great tools in my toolbox is extremely cost effective to manage a large area of land is fire. Mm -hmm. So how does fire fit into the management context of coffee ranch? And I guess, can we, can we talk about benefits of fire from a 30,000 foot view from Noble's perspective? Yeah. Um, and again, filter this hate mail through you. Cause I am by <laughs> no means an expert on fire, but, uh, Noble I am. Saying, <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. Then you can correct me when I'm about to be wrong. Probably. Um, no, Noble has a really strong prescribed burn program on those areas in Love County. So we've got three ranches in Love County, Red River Ranch, Coffee Ranch, Oswald Ranch. Um, Red River is almost entirely introduced pasture. So not necessarily an issue down there. So, um, on Oswalt and coffee, we've burned a lot. Um, and we've used it as a brush, I would say control kind of management technique, I guess, you know, brush management, you're not going to, I don't think you're going to be able to knock back brush with fire. We're able to keep it from advancing. Um, 
with, with where we were at and the state that those, that, you know, that those areas were in. So if you don't have proper grazing and you don't have good management outside of burning, I don't think that you are going to prevent brush or you're going to, I guess, reduce your brush encroachment with fire. Because if, if you're at the point where you're knocking back brush, you're going to also be knocking back other species, um, other desirable species. And so um, we used it as a management technique um, and did a lot of summer burns in order to get that done um, to burn, you know, really hot. Anybody who's done much fire knows that those good hot summer burns are really where you're going to kill brush. Um, you're just knocking out undergrowth in the winter. Don't want to burn a pasture when it's 95 degrees. It's not fun. It it's, is not a good time. <laughs> but it, okay. So my, my experience with prescribed fire goes all the way back to, I was about eight years old. I'm 44 now. My dad handed me a drip torch and said, walk that line. And I have been lighting, I have been burning these red hills ever since. Um, for six years of my Navy career, when I was on ships, I was a Navy firefighter. I mean, I, if you're an engineer on a boat, you're a firefighter too. Like you got to spend a lot of time learning how to fight fire. I come back here. Um, I moved back in 2006. In 2008, we started the Kansas State Prescribed Burning Association. Um, we have our own local burn association. We have our own daughter chapter off of that statewide umbrella association. I also uh, was the steering committee chairman and the president slash chairman for the first two years of the Kansas Prescribed Burn Council which is a second body that we made to keep um, the other one. So we've got two of them. We got two burn councils, prescribed fire councils. We got one for producers and one for non-producers. <laughs> so we, okay. st we stashed all the agency folks, all the NGOs, all the government people. We gave them their own thing. I like the, I like the word stashed. You stashed them. <laughs> it became pretty apparent that when we were putting our prescribed burn association together that, yeah, a lot of these partners want their voice at the table and rightly so like, you know, us fish and wildlife partners program, right. forever quail forever national wild turkey federation. Great. We need that at a different body. Like yeah. we need a burn association that's going to go promote burning and get more burn associations going. Like, well, it's, it's two different entities for two different goals. You're trying to have different outcomes. So that's why we made two entities. Yeah, entities. So we, we stashed all those folks somewhere else so they can't interfere with the people getting the real work done. Um, <laughs> but yeah, summer burning, it sucks. But that was my a, first experience with burning, FYI. But, but from a fire manager standpoint, lighting a fire when it's 95 degrees and four mile an hour of wind keeps my heart rate a lot lower than when I've got an 80 degree day with 17% humidity and 16 miles an hour of wind on the 15th of March or, you know, right. the 23rd of March when you haven't had rain for six months. Right. I had, I did one, one year, um, in February and I had a 750 yard jump on 12 miles an hour wind. Y'all can't see me shaking my head, but I'm, I'm saying hard <laughs> pass with my face right now. That's the kind of stuff that, you know, as, as a fire boss and a fire manager, 
that's the kind of stuff that I'll stay up for a week beforehand thinking about what do I do if this happens? What do I do if this happens? What do I do if this happens? And then you get to the day and, you know, I'm expecting a 250 yard hard perimeter that I have to maintain. And my guy that's maintained the perimeter is like, Hey, there's smoke North of me. We supposed to be burning up there. I'm like, no, go put it out. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's funny because, um, my significant other, uh, is a wildlife technician for the Oklahoma department of wildlife. And so he manages a 11,000 acre public hunting range basically. And they have a really, really strong, I mean, the Oklahoma department of wildlife in general has, they do a lot of burning. Um, and they started a prescribed burn association down in Love County as well. And so they help other people burn. There's a lot of people down there who have never burned before. And so this was an interesting burn season, (laughs) but it's really, it's kind of wild because where I live, I'm kind of up on a, on a flat spot up high. And whenever you have a day, the first day that is like, you know, the right humidity, the right wind, everything you can just, I mean, there's just smoke all around you. I mean, there's everybody is setting a fire as soon as the weather is right. And where I'm from is it's Chihuahuan desert right on the edge of Chihuahuan desert. So I did not grow up around fire at all. If there was fire, it was a bad, bad thing. Yeah. Probably not much fire culture down there. No, no, I was not. I mean, there's lots of things I wasn't exposed to whenever, um, when I say I moved up here, I didn't know anything about grass. I'm exposing myself a little bit here, (laughs) but when I moved here, Brian, I literally did not know that Bermuda grass grew outside of people's yards. (laughs) I was I had no idea because where I'm from, there's no such thing as introduced forage, because if it's not native, it will not grow because you do not have the water to be able to irrigate and you don't have the precipitation to be able to establish something that isn't native. And so, um, I I would, I would guess that probably a lot of my neighbors and a lot of your neighbors down there can't name five pasture grasses. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. And honestly, I'm this is maybe kind of mean to say there's a lot of people in New Mexico who might not have more than five pasture grasses because they have been in a drought for 15 years. Um, and when I say a drought, a management induced drought more than anything. That's Um, fair. So, um, yeah, I, I didn't know anything about range or grass at all. Um, and so I would, I've learned more in the past four and a half years than I did in, in seven years of formal education. That's for sure. Great. We got to do an ad read and we're going to come back and we're going to talk about fire some more. So we're right back. Introducing C90 Ocean Minerals. C90 offers complete nutrient support for today's farm and ranch. With over 90 minerals and trace elements in nature's perfect balance, C90 remineralizes soil, increases pasture quality, and elevates the wellness of your herd. Enjoy improved drought resistance, increased pasture protein and RFV values, and the elimination of pink eye and foot and hoof rot. Originally discovered by Dr. Maynard Murray, C90 is the only product that meets his standards for sea energy agriculture, including a living ocean source and elevated amounts of macro and trace elements. Freshly created in the Sea of Cortez and OMRI certified, C90 is free from pollutants and contaminants, including microplastics. Visit C90.com to learn more today. That's S-E-A-90. C90 is available through distributors across the U.S., including over 200 tractor supply locations. Click the link in the show notes to find the dealer nearest you. We are always looking to grow our network. Give us a call or email today and be sure to mention that Ranching Reboot sent you. Please check the show notes for all the contact information. Now back to this week's episode. And we're back. 
Fantastic. So we were talking about fire a little bit and mainly like we can kind of uh, explore uh, fire's traditional role mm. in, in, lands in the landscape and maybe how often that was. But I think it's a little more important to talk about uh, fire in the context that's a very useful tool for landscape restoration. And you know, we were talking about timing of burns and, and burn associations. And this isn't normally the time of year I think about fire. Like I'm, I'm more stressed out about trying to, you know, the cold coming up and work through that. I'm not even thinking about burning next spring because we could have the wettest winter on record. And I probably still wouldn't want to burn next spring because I probably don't have the fuel. I'm probably not going to leave the fuel loaded really anywhere yeah. to burn. I mean, I'm going to need to eat my, I need to eat my stockpile. Um, so it's hard to talk about burning in Oklahoma and not talk about my friend, Dr. John Weir from Oklahoma state. Yeah. Who I just got booked uh, for an interview in a couple of weeks. Oh, so, that would be great. Yeah. I, it's that's That'd coming in the future unless something happens, but I do have John Weir on the schedule uh, for a quote future episode. So have you met John? I have very briefly, um, but I have heard so much about him and it's, it's just funny that we're talking about fire because there are so many people in this hallway in this building that I'm in that live for fire. Hey, look at you. So I'm, I'm showing, I'm showing off a little drip torch pen. That's cool. That says OSU on it. It's got the o Oklahoma state university logo on it. And, um, Last time I saw John, it was back in uh, January. He came up to our burn meeting with uh, Drek Twidwell from okay. University from Nebraska, who's put together a tool called uh, who works on a tool called Rangeland Analysis Platform. Have you have you messed with that yet? I haven't. Oh, sister, I got to get you hooked up. Anyway, um, we were talking about fire, and you know, I I went up to John and I was just kind of joking. I'm like, "Hey, where can I get a pen like that?" And he's just like, and he just took it off and handed it to me, like. So this it's is sitting of, right by your computer. So this is like a prized heirloom. I feel like. <laughs> yeah, it's it's right here. Like I have a little collection of trinkets and things. Like I have a little, I have a little. I, I have a bunch of toys on my desk that I can fidget with. Okay, because I like to fidget with my fingers. All right, I won't judge you. <laughs> okay, but uh, anyway, back to summer burning. I'm I'm really starting to feel like. You know, the July, August, September time frame is when we would have had a lot of our historical fires. Because mm -hmm. if it's not for a guy like me with a match or a Bic lighter, how else does a pasture get on fire? In Lightning. <laughs> in 15 years, I can tell you the four months that we've had lightning strikes start fires. And one of them is not March or April. Yeah. Like that's it's good point. always. It's always later summer when we have the lightning strikes that start fires. Yeah. And I hadn't thought about that. That's a great point. You know, and that's not why I'm pushing to burn in the summer, which, you know, that, that, that will be when that tool comes out of my toolbox is likely to be a summer burn. Yeah. Um, and there would be times that I would want to do, you know, a late winter or early spring burn as well. And that'd be for a different context, but for where I'm at, on the ranch in a maintenance phase where I periodically need to reset forage due to lack of stock density. I want to impact some of the herbaceous forage, herbaceous 
plants that come in, the optimum time to do that is late summer. Right. At, at, I was going to say, the, you know, you're talking essentially about historical context of when things happened and why they happened. And I thought it was like really neat. You just said that doesn't mean that that's why I'm doing it then. But I think that's interesting when you think about, you know, the way different ecosystems, you know, I guess ecological sites developed just because they developed under, you know, certain pressure or, you know, a certain environmental condition doesn't mean that we have to mimic it, but I think it's important to know why that happened and how it develops because then you'll know how your management, whether you're mimicking nature or not, is going to impact that system. Like just, just knowing that. And I think that that's really valuable. Yeah. 100%. I mean, we used to talk about, um, I think one of the terms I came up with years ago was simulated migrational grazing of bison is that's what I was trying to replicate on a small scale on the ranch by, by moving at high stock densities, taking a large percent of the forage and then giving it a very long rest period. Yeah. And the more I kind of carried out that thought experiment of, well, how did the bison use this area? And I expanded, I expanded what I was thinking about off my ranch into a greater context of the entire plains. How did the bison use it? Well, one theory would be they spent the winter in Texas. They came north in the spring, spent the summer in Canada and came south in the fall and spent the winter in Texas. And I think anecdotally, forage component would support that, that that's, yeah. that that's how the Buffalo would chase optimal nutrition through the year. Yeah. You know, as it warms up, as it warms up in the Northern latitudes, they keep moving North and North and North to chase that new growth. That's the really super high energy and get away from the, the stuff that's not so great down on the Gulf coast in the, in the summer. And it's really interesting too, when you start thinking about places that are warm season dominated versus those that have you know, warm season and cool seasons. And if you think about the timing of grazing there and the pressure that was going to be on, on those different, you know, different groups of grasses, that's really interesting. <clears throat> so then I think about that. Oh man, we're chasing, well, we're going to chase all kinds of stupid rabbit holes now. Yeah, so I don't know what you're <laughs> going to call this episode, but you just need to call it like, I don't know, like rabbit chasing because that's all we're doing. <laughs> Have you ever, have you listened to any of my other episodes? <laughs> <laughs> I have, I have, but it's always worse when you're in the hot seat and you feel like you're just like running amok. It's not uncommon to get done and, you know, for the guests to be like, man, we didn't talk about this. We didn't talk about this. We didn't talk about this. I know, we didn't I have talk like a this. million things that I would love to talk about. There's so many, there's so many good things. Well, we can get, we can get to some of them. What's up? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm. I like what you're talking about. Please continue. Okay. <laughs> so the more I thought about, the more I, the more I kind of carried on this, you know, this bison experiment more in my head and the more I thought about it, like, okay, well, let's turn the clock all the way back. Let's go back 500 years. Okay. So we go back 500 years and we've got a large indigenous population on this continent. Spanish show up bring their disease between 1500 and 1650 ish. There's what 95, 98% of the indigenous population on the North American continent perished. Right. All the oral, all the oral history is gone. 
their culture is basically shattered and it's you know by the time 1650s roll around and europeans start coming you know to north america you know virginia that that type area they're encountering these tribes that have just been you know that have maybe only 20 or 30 years after being completely decimated by european disease which they had no understanding of like everybody just died we don't know what happened right you know we don't want to be there anymore so we're just gonna pack all our shit and we're gonna go somewhere else and then they start a new creation myth like well our tribe just wandered out of the woods you know or you know this is where our people come from and some of those creation myths kind of line up with that you know 16 to 1700 time frame when there would have been when they would have been starting to recover from the mass die-offs mm. okay i might be completely making all this crap up so Native Americans generally relied on bison. That that's kind of accepted pretty much everywhere west of the Mississippi River. As they you know they relied a lot on bison, and so if ninety five to ninety eight percent of the people that are consuming a product stop consuming that product, and that product is a wild animal, what happens to the wild animal? So, what if the uh, what if the near extinction or mass depopulation of the Native Americans was leading to overpopulation of bison? So in 1873, when uh, General Sherman declared his war on the bison in order to try to extinguish the threat of the Comanches and the other Plains Indians by removing their food supply, were we doing the bison a favor because they're headed for population crash because they used up all the resources because there's too many of them? I mean, Maybe. I mean, it's a possibility. It's worth thinking about. I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility. And and something else I think is worth mentioning is prior to European contact, there was an estimated 600 million beavers in North America. Mm. There's barely 2 million now. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of people in England that wore pretty fur hats. You know, I've got a reclaimed beaver hat that I'm pretty proud of, but, uh, you know, it's from, I forget the story, but it's, it, it's pretty cool. I have to show you sometime. Um, so we're short an awful lot of beaver. Yeah. If there was, if there was even a hundred times the number of beaver to get back, get from two to 200 million, which is still a third of what it could have been in antiquity. What do you suppose all our creeks and rivers would look like? <laughs> Unrecognizable from what they look like now. Okay. How well do you think Buffalo would get across them? Yeah, that's a real, I, I'd never so, put those two together. So to some extent, I think that there was, uh, there was some movement of bison that was controlled by beavers and the yeah. way they had water dammed up and the way they, the, the way they created wetlands and, you know, really wide rivers. I think there was maybe only a few places that bison could cross some of those. I don't know. It's, it's very interesting to think about, and it's, I'm always surprised by how little we actually know about what really happened. Do you lay awake at night and think about these things? You seem, you seem like you lay awake and wonder about these things. I actually don't have any trouble getting to sleep most nights. That's just interesting. Cause I'd never. I just, I don't know if I'd ever have like chased that trail of if this, then that, then that, 
but I think that's a really great point. It's really, it is fascinating to think about what our rangelands looked like 400 years ago. And we have, we have an idea, right? If you kind of go through literature from back then and the way people wrote about it, um, the things that they'd observed and seen, but still it just, it, it really makes you wonder. Yeah. And we'll never know, you know, like, do you, how much do we believe some of the anecdotal, you know, like anecdotal stories that, oh, the grass was so tall, you could tie it over the, over the saddle of a horse. Right. What are we talking about here? Are we, are we talking about, you know, some freaking draft horse or are we talking about a Shetland pony? I mean, what, what are we talking about? Yeah. Yeah. And it, depending on where you're at, cause I'll say that, you know, we have some grass that'll get that tall here in areas, right? We have certain ecological sites that are that way. Um, but you know, obviously not every ecological site was meant to be that way. So, um, it makes you wonder how widespread that was. Yeah. I mean, I, big blue stem at about seven feet tall Indian grass at about six, six and a half. That's about as tall as I get around here. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that's tall enough on a short ish horse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what, what's on your list? What would you like to talk about? You know, we were talking about your, your cows and kind of your, your mutt breed that you have going on. I'm interested in that. I want to talk about that. Okay. What would you like to know? So I grew up raising Coriander cattle. Okay. And I, I knew I, I liked you for some reason. That. Huh? I knew I liked you for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll tell you why is, um, when we were down in that big bend area and I'll tell you, we were on, I think 37,000 acres. And then people used to joke around that if you ironed it out flat, it was about a hundred thousand acres. It was, it was rough stuff. Um, my dad ran it. It was just us. We lived out in the boonies. Fun fact. I was homeschooled my whole life because we lived so far from town. So it's amazing. Awesome. I'm not, you know, socially weird or am I don't answer that. Um, so <laughs> we were in a pretty hefty drought and we were in country where like we had a string of pack horses to take mineral up. And if you had to haul parts up or I have a picture of my dad hauling tractor tires up the mountain to uh, repair a tractor on horses. And so, I mean, it was, it was rough country and it wasn't the kind of country that we didn't have a feeder. I, I remember the first time when we moved to New Mexico and we got a cake feeder on the back of a truck. I was like, what is this contraption? Because there was no way you could get it through the mountains there. And so, um, if we had to supplement, we just supplement bagged feed because you could throw in the bed of a truck. And so anyways, we went into a pretty severe drought and cattle just were not, were not thriving. And so we sacked all the beef cattle and we got into Coriani cattle. And I'm trying to think this, this will be probably 98 is probably when this was 99. Okay. And then, um, that was really interesting is was, was, I guess, seeing and learning the way those cattle operate. Cause they do, they operate very differently from beef cattle. Um, they would go to acting almost like a feral pig. <laughs> I mean, digging roots up out of the ground. <laughs> and so, um, we got I've watched those. a walk by green Indian grass to eat a yucca. It's amazing. It really is. And, and kind of crawl up into the crooks of trees whenever you're up in the mountains. But when we moved to New Mexico, we took that, um, we took that, that Coriander herd with us. And so highway 380 runs through right smack through the middle of the ranch that my dad runs now. And it's, oh, it's like 130,000 acres where he's at now. 
And so the north side of the ranch was beef cattle. And we destocked pretty heavily two years ago because of the drought out there. But the north side was beef cattle and the south side was Coriana cattle. And we still ran the Corianas. And I just thought it was really interesting. I guess looking at, at the way <clears throat> kind of the ecology responded on the north side of the ranch versus the south side of the ranch, I think that there were some some significant differences, um, even in a landscape like that. But I just, I got a lot of flack. I think whenever I kind of got into the academic environment, and even when I got into a professional environment, you know, the beef industry can be a little snooty about things. And they're just like, oh, Corrientes, they're not contributing anything to the beef chain. And (laughs) you you don't say. (laughs) And it was really interesting. And I, I remember feeling, um, I don't know, I wouldn't say like insecure about it, but you know, you tell people that and something else, if, if anybody ever needs help pulling calves, I'm not the person to call because we never, never calved out heifers growing up. And when we moved to New Mexico, what we did is all of our, did you calve out the heifers and just not have to pull any calves? Well, yeah. So, but when people are calving out heifers, like, okay, well, you got to get heifers up and you got to watch them. And you got to be looking at them every four hours. We didn't do that. We didn't, we didn't do that. And to me, that was normal. Like I didn't understand that people did that. And something that that should be part of a cow's job description, like have a, have a calf unassisted. I agree. So, and I still feel this way when everyone's like, oh, it's calf, you know, it's calving season. Oh God, you know, I'm not going to get any sleep. I'm just like, what sounds like a personal problem. (laughs) But (laughs) So all the beef heifers, what my dad started doing is we put Coriana bulls over all of the beef heifers okay, and calve out these half breed calves. And, um, he'd figured out that we, what he would do is he'd wean a young calf, so about a hundred day old calf and sell them into the roping calf market in like June or July. And that's probably not I, bad for a quick turnaround. So, well, it's in, so whenever I kind of got into my career <clears throat> and my dad, you know, I, I worship the ground he walks on, but people would ask me just like, oh, you know, you can get, you know, you shouldn't early wean heifers calves just because they're heifers. They can produce, you know, pounds for you and produce money for you. And you should expect them to. And I got to thinking about it. And I asked my dad one day, I called him up and I was just like, do you think that you're missing out on profit by not getting, you know, a full breed calf out of a heifer and, 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 you know, weaning him at seven, eight months. And it's like, do you think that you're missing out financially on that? And he said something that stuck with me. And I still think it's one of the smartest things I've ever heard. Um, is he told me, he was like, you know, he said, if you know, that heifer has that calf and it's a small calf just falls out of her, she didn't have any problems. And then she's able to raise that calf and then we wean him early and she's able to recover. She doesn't get sucked down way into, you know, we get really, really dry. We, we rely on the monsoon season for rain. So July, August. And so whenever you get into September, October, things are getting pretty rough around here or in New Mexico. And so he's like, you know, you wean that calf off. She has a chance to recover nothing bad happens to her. And she knows how to be a mom. She knows how to raise a calf. And he told me, he said, I'm willing to sacrifice a calf to make a cow because that calf is one year. And if I make her, if she knows how to be a cow, then she's good to me for the next eight or 10 potentially. And I thought that was really, really smart. And it has really influenced the way I look at heifer development is, is, you know, everyone's I feel like, I feel like it's a hot topic. That first calf, that first calf, like, Oh, you know, you should still expect, expect that much out of her. And you should still expect that calf to perform and to bring you money. But what is the value of her not having dystocial problems? What is the value 
of you not having to go out and worry about that and being able to spend your time and your labor somewhere else? And what is the value of her not losing condition and you having to worry about getting that back into her so she can get rebred? Like, what is the value there? Because our, whenever I asked him this question, this was probably six years ago. No, it was about five, six years ago. And he pulled out the books and looked at the conception rate for his second calf cow. So his breed backs from those heifers. And it was a 97% breed up. And he told me, he was just like, he's like, tell me where the problem is. So, you know, what's the value of that? And it's just, I think that's something that we don't think about enough. And I get to thinking about the value of breeds like Coriannes, whether it's in a mix or just crossing, like what is the financial value of their benefit, especially in a crossbreeding situation, which I know you're doing, um, to, I guess, I guess in comparison to the way that we have traditionally viewed the way a beef system has to work. Yeah. It, it makes a lot more sense to me to have, you know, a six, 700 pound cow that'll wean a 400 pound calf or 450 pound calf than a 1200 pound cow. That's going to wean a six or 650 pound calf. Right. I, I, and you know, I can have, I can have five small cows for every three big cows or more. Right. You know, they eat less. Okay. Yeah. The calves don't sell for quite as much at the barn. If I take them to the barn, I guarantee you the generation of calves I got on the ground, my spring, my spring calves from this year, solid black. They're all naturally pulled. Like only a couple of the steers have, have, have white markings on them. Like they all definitely have enough black on them to qualify for CAB. I guarantee you that. And they go through the ring at the barn. There ain't anybody that's going to know they're, they're half core in a, unless yeah. I tell them. Yeah, we, and he bred a lot of the color out of the cows. So we had about 600 head of, of mama Corey in a cows. And he had a couple of, of those herds. We kind of had like three of them across that, you know, it's a big ranch, big, big country, big pastures, not a lot of water. And, um, but there was, there was a significant portion of those cows that were just solid black. And that was really cool. When you were moving cattle, if you're riding drag, it was just a sea of black and horns in front of you. It was really cool to see. Um, but those, like, you're exactly right. Even if those calves aren't, you know, aren't young, even if you sell them at seven, you know, eight months of age, um, you can't tell that they're, they're half Corian until they get probably yearling age. It's really, it's, it's kind of surprising. And I think some of mine, some of my calf crop is only a quarter Coriente or Longhorn. Yeah. Cause I had some, I've got some, a few cows already that are half breed. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so we've got to definitely have an interesting crop of replacement heifers to grow for the next year and a half. <laughs> and I, I, I think that some of those half breed calves probably more than more likely than not have, um, higher quality carcass than maybe not as many pounds, but when you think about fat deposition, Corianes marble really, really well because they don't put on a ton of muscle mass. And so they tend to deposit that marbling a lot quicker. And so, you know, we've had to, we've eaten a couple of Coriani cows at, you know, just, oh, you know, steers or heifers broke a leg or something, you know, and you just kind of end up feeding them out and they are, they're incredible. The quality is incredible. We're eating a seven-year-old cow that I pulled out of the pasture and hauled the processor. Yeah. I mean, she'd been on, she'd had like every few days I'd take out about five pounds of cake for 10 cows. 
and throw it on the ground. I'd let them use two protein tubs in a month. I pulled her out of the pasture, took her to the processor, and we're eating it. And it's, uh, I mean, you don't have to take my word for it because, of course, I'm biased because I'm eating my own cow that came off of my ranch. But it's, it's surprisingly really good. good. Yeah, it's yeah. surprisingly good. It really is. And I also remember really clearly like feeding with my dad, you know, whenever I was a kid and we'd, you know, be feeding like beef cows and, you know, you'd have the feeder set to however many pounds. And every time he went over to feed coriander cows, he'd drop that clicker down a couple of pounds because he was just like, <laughs> they don't, they don't need it. And, yeah. you know, I remember that very clearly. And again, that was just something that I just knew growing up. So when people started challenging me about it, whenever I got into my professional career, I was kind of surprised because I was just like, man, like, I don't understand why y'all are so you know, offended by this. Yeah. And you call yourself a rancher and you don't know that you've never yeah, pulled you... a calf and you call yourself a rancher. No, yeah. I just have cows. I don't have to do that. Yeah. I just, it wasn't my experience. And, um... Oh my God. What do you do if you have one that has trouble giving birth and you have to pull a calf, sell the cow. Yeah. I mean, and sometimes it's not her fault. Right. But you know, we sell just, the didn't, cow. we didn't have that many issues with it. And, um, I think a lot of the times too, whenever, which I mean, I say, I think I know for a fact that whenever you pen up cattle, especially heifers, and you put them in an area where they can't travel and they can't move and they can't exercise, you will have more dystocia problems. There is research that can show that, but if you have observed both sides of that situation, you'll know clear as day that, you know, not giving those cattle the, the freedom to, to be able to move is you are asking for trouble. I mean, I, I calve in the pasture on the move. Yeah. But that's just, that's just how I do it. And sometimes like if I'm moving across, if I'm just moving across the hot wire, I don't really care if I have the calves, I'll leave them behind. We do the same thing. They'll find their way. <laughs> but I'm moving across the barbed wire. Yeah. For the yeah, first, you know, in, until all the calves are at least two or three weeks old and have been through a move or two. When we go through a barbed wire, we'll leave that open for a day and I'll make sure I, you know, I'll make sure I ride drag and try to do a good hard sweep and make sure we've got everything. Yeah. You do have to be patient moving cattle when they're calving. I would say, you know, it takes, it takes a little bit of patience because I mean, I don't know. I feel in our experience, you got to give those cows time. If they, if, if something's wanting to circle back, you need to, you know, have the wherewithal to recognize that and let her circle back and pick up her calf if she wants to, and, you know, give that time to happen. <laughs> funny you say that you know I, patience is something that i've worked on my whole life with cattle and i'm to the point now where people are like why are you just standing around waiting just 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 relax just wait they'll do what i want them to do they just have to figure out that that's why i'm here um that being said like uh if you want to find the best stockman go look for the fat guy on the lazy horse <laughs> That doesn't look like he's doing anything, but always seems to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Jump in his back pocket and pick his brain because he's probably the best stockman out there. Don't go ride with the guy that's bouncing off every fence and running a million miles an hour and swinging his rope all day. That's probably not the guy you want to learn from. I was incredibly fortunate to grow up with, with someone. My dad's an incredible stockman. And it's really funny because growing up, he was trying to teach me things, you know, but he would tell me all the time. He's like, I can see a wreck happening and you can't. And I'd get frustrated because 
be like, why are you getting on to me? Like, I don't, you know, I, I, nothing bad happened. He goes, no, but it was about to, like, I can see it happening. And I'd get really frustrated with him. We buttered heads a lot over that. And then I got older and I left and I started going into environments where other people were working cattle. And all of a sudden I realized that I'd learned more than I thought I had. And I was the, the one getting, th- I was the one that could see the wrecks happening, getting so frustrated with people. And that's a, there's it, a time it, where <laughs> you see one of those wrecks getting ready to happen. I just turn around and walk away. It's stressful. I don't know why it do. is. <laughs> yeah, it's. When, but whenever I think part of it too is again, I just have a different experience and it's not better or worse in any way. But I mean, I grew up with, you know, we'd, we'd wean calves and you'd have them in the trap for, you know, a couple of weeks, get them used to caking and stuff. And then my dad and I would move them horseback maybe three or four miles where they're supposed to go. And there'd be 400 head of, of yearlings and two people and no problem. And it's just, it's one of those things that I just, I had a different perspective of things growing up and, um, stockmanship, I think plays so much into the joy of running cattle. And I feel like that can be overlooked a lot. I think, I think handling corrientes gives you a different set of stockmanship skills than if you've just worked around English or continental cattle. I'm so glad to hear you say that. That's so validating <laughs> to hear. Because I remember when we'd work cattle as a kid and we like, we do like the beef side, we'd spend like a week and a half, have a day workers, have a crew come in, right. Work the beef side and then give it about a week. And then we'd work the Coriana side. And it was so funny because all the day workers were always just like, Oh God, here we go. Better bring, you know, your horse that has long legs. And it was always this whole thing. And they said that they operated more like sheep than they did like cattle. Yes. And everyone was so dramatic about it. And I was just used to it. But like, now I'm like, yeah, they were right. <laughs> well, rules for working Coriones. Don't run. Your horse doesn't run. Nothing. Your arms don't come above the plane of the shoulder. Yeah. And no yelling. If you're in a lope, you've already lost. Yep. That's just kind of where you're at. <laughs> yep. And okay, I'm that crazy guy. I'm not a horse person. So I do yep. all of my cow work on foot. Yeah. And I can tell you, like, it, it's, you got to be different. You, you have to be on a different set of game when you're working cattle that have two feet of spear on the end of their head. Yeah. And they know where that point is. They know where that tip is every single second of their life. Yeah. And they know when they can get to you with it. Do you run Coriani bulls? No. That was, that was always the, the wildest, I think, part of it for us. They're, um, I feel like they have so much more, I don't know what the word is for it, wild instinct than, you know, than kind of the English breeds. Um, they have territories. They're very territorial. And they know when you're pushing them into another bull's trail, which, and that's different too. We ran big country, right? So big right. pastures and stuff. But if you go to moving cattle, you'd pick up a bull and you drive him to a certain point and he knew he was entering another bull's territory and he knew the consequences of that. And there was a lot of times that you, that was a losing battle. Um, it's really interesting. And I, I noticed the cows have that too. They have still that territorial instinct. Um, oh, it's a lot different from like the English continental breeds. Makes sense. I've never thought about, I've never really thought about bulls being territorial like that, but they, yeah. some of the behavior I've seen in the last two years with some 
not my bowls, but with some customer bowls, that makes a large amount of sense. Yeah, they are. They're really, because, you know, they'll drive each other out of each other's territory. And so you'll, you wouldn't ever find bulls running like in bachelor groups, you know, if you had cows around, they, they were, they were territorial. And again, if, if you were running, especially like a, like a young bull into like a more dominant bulls area, that there, doesn't was, work. <laughs> there was nothing that you could do short of, of putting a rope on him and dragging him to, to get him through. Um, so that it's just, it's just things that you, that you learn to read cattle and you learn to understand, um, what they're telling you instead of, I always got really frustrated. People are just like, Oh, you know, this cow's being stupid or she's stupid or she's ignorant or she's crazy. And it's just like, what is it? Is it Tom Dorrance? I think has the same like any, I think it's Tom Dorrance. And he said, um, any person who is called an animal stupid was likely just outsmarted by it. <laughs> I can, I, I can see that. Like, you know, the calf, the sheep, the goat, they're not being stupid. They misunderstood what we were asking them to do. Yeah. That's not their fault. That's our fault as a livestock handler for being unclear of what we expect of that animal in that moment. Right. And whether, and the fault a lot of times doesn't necessarily lie in what you did in that situation. It's what you've done previously to train and desensitize or expose those animals to different things. Right. Yeah. Because every time we go out there, you know, every time you go to the pasture, you change how the cattle are grazing, you change how they're behaving. Like, unless you're sitting a mile away with a pair of binoculars, it's hard to tell what the cattle are really doing because just your presence, just your, I guess it's like quantum mechanics. Like you can't measure something without actually, cha without changing it. And every time you want to measure it, it changes. So it changes the measurement. It's kind of like that. Whenever you go out to look at your cows, you change their grazing pattern. You change how they're acting. Mm -hmm. And every time you're with your animals, you're teaching them. They are learning from you. And every time you bring them into the corrals, they are learning something every time they're in the corrals around good or people. bad, <laughs> good or bad, indifferent. Yeah. And if you're a guy like me that bought a bunch of old cheap roped out cows, a lot of their previous experience in confinement around pens has been somebody yelling at them and chasing them with a horse. Yeah. So that doesn't exist here. We don't do that here. You'll hear me say a lot, you know, oh, you know, Someone said, or I heard this one time, it's because everything I know, I learned from someone smarter than me. There is, there is, there's nothing I feel like I've learned that I didn't learn from somebody um, or through some form of, of personal experience that was probably a result of bad judgment. But um, someone told me one time that if you are within sight of cattle, you are teaching them something, whether you know it or not. If they can see you, they are processing and they are, are taking that and, and, you know, you're teaching them something, whether you know it or not, which is exactly what you just said. And I've always thought it really, really makes you think whenever you're out, even just driving through checking cattle. I think it's even further away than that. I think it's, they hear you. Oh yeah. Like if, if you're like me and drive a diesel feed truck without a muffler, I can't sneak up in a pasture. Yeah. Like they're always in the same corner. I mean, they'll always be in a corner. They'll always be in the near corner. If I'm coming out to check them in the feed truck, if I take the gator out, which is a different noise, it's quieter. A lot of times they'll still be out grazing. 
you know, they'll be, you know, scattered. It'll be, you know, in their grazing wave or the grazing unit moving around the pasture. But yeah, it's, I, I think they definitely, I think cow's senses are definitely underappreciated and understudied. You know, I, I'm not sure that a cow really sees that great. You know, maybe not, maybe not very many colors, but they definitely see shapes and can pick out movement at a distance. I think they get a lot more of their information about their environment out of their ears. Yeah. Like I think their ears are, are, are a big radar and you know, a lot of the stockmanship gurus, not a lot, you know, there are some folks that teach stockmanship that say, you got to get her eye. You got to pick up her eye. Like, look, unless you're standing behind her ass, you have her eye. She can see you. She doesn't need to move to see you. Her ears will tell you what she's paying attention to. Her ears will tell you, what she's thinking about and where she's thinking about going. Yeah. She'll, um, she'll always tell you what she's going to do before she's going to do it. You just have to be paying attention. And that's why, that's why some of us can see wrecks before they happen. (laughs) And honestly, it's a burden. It's a burden that I wish I didn't have to carry. (laughs) Oh, I remember. So back in, um, excuse me, 2019, uh, my first real exposure around a lot of Coriandis, I, uh, I brought in a herd. I had a buddy call me and he's like, Hey, I got to make some room on a ranch. I got 120 cows. You got to, you got a place for them. I think, well, yeah, I can do that. I can do that for about 120 days. So I took in 123 pair for 120 days in a 250 acre pasture and we strip grazed it. And these Coriandis, when they came off the truck at my ranch, had never been around hot wire before. I was going to say, how is it training Coriandis to hot wire? Is it a lot different from continental cattle? Well, I think a lot of that really, I think a lot of success or failure in training cattle to hot wire really depends. It really comes down to having a good ground rod or good grounding system and a good fast charger. Right. I've had very poor success on some chargers breaking cattle to hot wire. Yeah. I changed the brand of charger. Same, you know, same output or even less output. Just change the brand of charger. I went to a Taylor Cyclops. Okay. And they hit hard and they hit fast. And the fast is more important than the hard. Because how far under a hot wire can a calf get in a second and a half versus three quarters of a second? Right. Yeah, I agree. You know, is if you have a really slow charger, even if it is clicking along at 15,000 volts, if your charger is too slow, that calf will get under there, feel the wire on their neck, not get shocked, take another step. Now the wire is in the mid back, then they get popped. They're not going backwards. They're going forwards. Would you, would you agree that Koreanis have a lot less of a herd instinct than traditional beef cattle? Have you observed that? I'd are you so you're so you're saying that they spread out and stay shotgunned out across the pasture more. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say that's true. Okay. In my experience, yeah, with my herd. Well, in my experience it, was just with <laughs> our herd. So that's why that's why I'm genuinely asking. And like when you'd move cattle, they'd string out so much further. Um, but they would you know, if, if you were moving cattle, which I mean, we would drive cattle miles. If you're driving cattle, there would usually be a couple of them 
that would go off. So, I mean, if you'd let them, they, they'd wander off, a, you know, a hundred yards and they would travel with you, but they'd stay that far away. And I never had that experience with like English or continental type cattle. Right. And so I was just wondering if, if that, um, grazing those animals under density, obviously they will do it. They'll learn to do it. I just was wondering if they had an, uh, you know, kind of an inclination to behave differently or if they didn't take it as well, or if the training looked different for them. Okay. So there, there's, there's some to unpack in here. <laughs> Am I opening a can of worms? No, no, not at all. I found more rabbits. <laughs> I love them. Um, so I put the herd, this herd of cattle together. I started putting them together third week of March, 2020, you know, perfect time to be buying cows. COVID's setting in the world's getting ready to end. Yeah. We're yeah gonna, that was a good time. We're going to go buy some cows. Seemed like the right thing to do at the time. Um, for the first 210 days I had them, we strip grazed in that same pasture. I mean, we're running 40 to 50,000 pounds per acre stock density on daily moves. Okay. And they were doing fine. They were doing good. Um, then we came from that. Then just about, uh, well, I guess it was about this time of year, two years ago. Um, my friend, Josh Hoy called me and said, Hey, I got a D stock. You want to buy some cows? Well, tell me about them. <laughs> so I ended up with, with a really good number of some beautiful longhorn Coriente and cross genetics from Josh. And I was really excited to get them because um, Josh's place is about three hours, uh, two and a half. Yeah, two, about three hours. Fun fact, um, Gwen was in my group in my Ranching for Profit class when I went earlier this year. I love Gwen. She's awesome. She's great. <laughs> um, but their, their place on the Flint Hills, their grass is very, very similar to mine. Their yeah. topography is very, very similar to mine. Management pretty similar to mine. So I'm like, yeah, that's great. I'm pretty sure those cows will work here. So what's important to note about those cows is those cows were part of Josh and Gwen's instinctive migration grazing herd that Bob Kinford talks about all the time that, yeah. you know, Ricky Kremers teaches and, you know, some of those other folks. So, so those, you lucked out is what you're saying. Well, those cows knew how to work, work as a unit. Yeah. And Right around the same time, I also got in a short load from, from a sale barn. And it was, then we moved them across the road to a hundred acre paddock. So now we got like a hundred, you know, hundred odd cows in a hundred acre paddock. And we're just leaving them there for a while because it was getting cold. Labor situation changed. We weren't going to be running polywire anymore. So it was, you know, we shifted to a winter type program. And the first couple of weeks, it was real interesting to watch them because there'd be the group of mine that had been on strip grazing. They'd be together. Then there'd be the group I bought from Josh. And they'd be together. And then there'd be the sale barn mutts that had just got there. And they'd just be kind of all scattered out. It's like kids <laughs> in a cafeteria in high school. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, there's the jocks over there. Oh, there's, yeah. the, you know, there's the, red, there's the weird redheaded kids over there. There's the ones with the big horns over there. I won't ask where you were. Um, I was at the nerd table. Okay. That's, right. that's, yeah, I was definitely at the nerd table. Um, you were at the cool kids table. I'm sure I was homeschooled my whole life. Oh, I yeah. was at my own table by myself. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Even better. You didn't have anybody to make fun of you. <laughs> hey, I have an older brother. That is not true. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'll leave that one alone. Uh, <laughs> so then as, as the winter kind of progressed, 
um, I didn't really notice much. But then the next spring, when we got back onto rotations, you know, as we, we did a few pasture moves over the winter, just, you know, kind of keep moving around, balance consumption out between the different stockpile paddocks. Then we got into spring and uh, I co-mingled with, with a friend and he brought in quite a few more than I had. So the majority of them out there were his and the minority were mine. After we got through about four or five moves, it was real interesting because they would all stick together for about two days when we got into a new paddock. They'd all come through together and they'd all stick together and move around as this big giant blob. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I observed that happening in 2021 and it's still, it's still happening. Like, so all I've not, it's just my cows right now. There's, we're not commingled. There's no, not running with anybody right now. So it's just my stuff and they're in a blob. Yeah. I mean, they stay together. There might be, there's like some splinter groups of two-year-olds that'll go off by themselves. There's a little splinter group of about seven or eight spring calves and a couple one-year-olds that go off by themselves. But for the most part, um, you know, and if you, know, you said like, if they can see you, they're reactive. Well, I've got to like my commute out. A lot of times on my commute out, I can look over and see where the cows are in the pasture and see where they're at. And then by the time I get around, you know, around on the highway and they've heard me driving through the pasture for right. 10 minutes, yeah. like, okay, where are you now? Yeah. When I see them from that distance, you know, when I'm observing them from that mile, mile and a half, like they're always in a bunch. Like it's the majority of them are in a bunch. So I would say in my experience with my cows, because, you know, we got part of an IMG herd, got a herd that's been on strip grazing and been doing pretty steady, consistent paddock moves and paddock shifts, you know, for over two years, they stick together. Like yeah, they move and they know when it's time to move. Right. And they know when it's time to move. Cause that's the only time I really talk to them. That's the only time I get loud and they yell at them and just yell, come on cows. And psh, yeah, they're there. Um, it doesn't hurt that I've got a couple of, um, let's just call them for what they are. Cake whores that love to eat cake out of my hand. Um, you know, and that's, that's, that's very beneficial to keep, uh, keep that skill set up with your cows is to always have a couple of them that want to come to you to get a treat. Right. Because yeah. you can use those cows to lead the rest of them wherever you want. You know, what's funny is that we feel that way. I feel that way. I say we, I definitely feel that way about our guardian dogs with our small ruminants. <clears throat> because whenever you're like trying to move goats or sheep, you know, and you got guardian dogs, ours at least, you know, that flock or that herd, whatever will not go. Like if you're trying to lead through a gate, they will not go to the dogs go. And if you've got dogs that bulk up at the gate and don't want to go in, or if you're trying to pen goats or sheep, you know, they go where the dogs go. And if the dogs have been in there before and they don't want to go, it's worth a lot to have a lead dog that you're friendly with that you can call in. Cause as soon as he goes, everybody goes. So similar concept. Yeah. I, and I can, I can definitely see, see the stockmanship aspect of that and the, and the relationship aspect of that with the dog and the sheep, you know, that's like the sheep need permission from the dog. This is safe. This is okay. After you know, which we just started running sheep here two years ago and we just got goats this year. Um, and after my experience with them, people ask all the time about different guardian animals. 
um, because the guardian dogs, you know, you always say, okay, if you're close to town, you probably got to be careful. If you know, if you've got neighbor dogs, you'll have some issues. And you talk about stray dogs coming in. If you're talking about spaying or neutering those guardians, some people don't want to. And anyways, there's all these questions. And so people just want to do away with that problem. And they're just like, well, what about having mules or what about having alpacas or something? And I'm just, after my experience with the dogs, I would never run anything else because they are not just protection, but they help so much whenever you're moving animals that they do the job for you. If you get the dogs on board, you don't have to worry about the animals. It's like they do it for you. It's pretty cool. It's neat. To, it's neat to see. Yeah, that is. That is. I wonder if it, yeah, never mind. What else is on your list? You know, I don't, I don't even know. We've gone through so many things at this point. What are we at? Like nine rabbits? I don't even count anymore. <laughs> Should we make it around 10? I think the, the only other thing that's like, I don't know if I had anything on my list necessarily, but the only other thing that's on my mind right now is what is on everyone's mind. And that's drought contingency within your management. Yeah. So um, looking at the schedule and I will pencil this in for November 7th, episode 89. So what should guys be thinking about the beginning of November as far as grazing management, feeding through winter and drought management? Because look, it's too late to do anything about your feed budget this year. It's too right. late. I mean, the only thing that you could do if you don't have enough forage on hand at this point is take cows to town unless you want to spend, you know, a lot of money to feed them. Did you see, there's a piece that Clay Mathis at King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management put out, where do I have it here somewhere? He put it out last week. Um, and did it come in the magazine or was it a newsletter? Yes. It was in like the, their little magazine that comes out. Um, anyways, I, I have, have to, a copy of it about four feet away over there on the floor. It's just on the other side of the desk. I, I'm in the same situation. Uh, <laughs> But you need to read it and then call me. We need to talk about it because it's interesting because what he does is he weighs the, the options between if you liquidate cattle versus what it would cost you to acquire those cattle back. Um, and it's a short piece. And I really want to call him up. Play, if you're listening to this, you're going to hear from me. I want to call him up and, and ask him about what all went into that because he kind of balances the pros and cons of liquidating versus feeding cattle through the winter. Um, and I think, you know, that's the question for everybody is not, not, do I have forage? Cause you either do or you don't, but do I liquidate or do I not? And a lot of people are holding out. There's a lot of people that are feeding a lot and they're heartbroken about it. They're like, man, I don't want to get rid of them at the bottom of the market. Cause these things are going to be worth a lot next year. And I am an eternal pessimist and I believe that nothing is promised. <laughs> so I don't know. It's a tough spot to be in, you know? You know, I, I think a lot of the folks that are saying, a lot of the folks that, that are making the mistake, like that are going to just try to feed through it, they'll be like, oh, they'll be worth more on the other side. They're the guys that have never been through it before. Yeah. And, and maybe they, they're worth more, but are they going to be worth as much as you put into them? That's the question. And I think that's, that's what it really comes down to. Okay. Right. You know, are they going to be, yeah they're going to be worth money. Are they going to be worth that much more? I mean, I, I think there's, there's definitely people that are going to be spent on top of $5 a day for 180 days or more yep. to get their cows to see another spring. Yeah. To get them back to another calving season. Like 
I don't understand how you can put $900 of cost in a cow in six months and expect to get that back out of a calf. You're going to be upside down. And I just, I, I don't, I, I'm the same as you. I don't, I can't visualize the situation in which you get it back. And I was reading that piece with Clark Roberts was sitting here in my office. And again, he's the manager at Coffee Ranch. And they were, you know, Clay was talking about the cost of kind of the opportunity cost of liquidating, you know, those cattle now versus holding on to them. And he asked me outright, he just said, he's like, what about the ecological cost? And he said, because if you have those cattle out there, maybe you're not forcing them to eat, eat what's not there. He said, but they're still going to graze whether you want them to or not, if you have them out there and you were going to do more and more damage to, you know, your water cycle and your energy cycle and your everything. And so he's like, what is the ecological cost and how long does it take you to gain that back? And what's the value of that? And I was just like, man, that's a really great point because it's not just the immediate cost. What's the long-term cost? Um, and so I don't know. It's it. It's it. Cause we, we have actually, we have a, um, we have a meeting tomorrow for noble ranches about our drought contingency plan, which we have a plan in place. And like, what are we doing moving forward? Um, how many, head do we have left on every ranch? How much forage? We went out and measured forage. How much forage do we have left? And what are our plans? And I think if you're not doing that, you know, first November, if you haven't sat with your team or just, even if it's just you and, and looked at the numbers and and known when I say, look at the numbers, estimate your forage, calculate your forage and, and know where you're at because it's going to be a long winter. (laughs) It really is. Uh, September, September 15th, October 15th is when I try to get most of my most of my fall measuring monitoring done so i i have my then i have my winter feed plan my winter my winter feed plan everything is well, probably by the first of november i'll have everything tightened up and i'll know where i'm going to be when i'm going to be there where i'm going to be feeding and how and how i'm getting to may 1st yeah which is allegedly when we'll have green grass again if it rains yeah, and it's, I mean, at, at Nobold, I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, we, we made some changes on the fly already. We early weaned or weaned earlier than we planned to. Which so, is a good strategy to reduce forage consumption and demand. Well, and I'll tell you, so like, and again, I'm just, I'm at coffee a lot. So, but you know, at, at all the ranches, I say all the ranches at Oswald and at coffee, especially those calves were really losing condition. And, um, at coffee, that set of cows is already on a later calving season or a more ideal calving season. And everyone else is kind of transitioning that way. So the coffee cows calve, they start calving like the last week of March. And so March, April, May is kind of, you know, first part of May. That's what we're looking at. So those calves were the youngest when we were, we were weaning them. Um, but the cows looked terrible in September and that was a wake up call. And so we went ahead and early weans and we started supplementing again here about three weeks ago with just a little bit of protein. And I'll tell you in, in a month since weaning, those cows have gained about half a body condition score. Um, and I, I wouldn't have believed that that was going to happen, but it was incredible how quickly they came back because those calves were young enough that they were still high enough in the lactation curve mm-hmm. that pulling them off of those cows did a lot of good for the cows and just giving them just that little bit of protein supplement to that forage is already senescing. And so to be able to get them on, on that forage with a little bit of protein, man, 
I think it, it saved our butts to make that decision because we're not going to be having to feed condition into them now in the winter. If they were already able to get it back before we hit dormant. Right. Like it, the cheap time to put condition on the cows is it's behind us. It's in yep. the rear view mirror already for probably, well, for probably everybody, but uh, south of I-20, I'd imagine. And the other thing we did was we cut our breeding season short. Um, we had a 45 day breeding season this year and we just said they, they can get to it or get gone. And so we called hard. We had, you know, a conception rate that a lot of people would really, really not be happy about. But for us, do you want to tell how me how we bad determined who was worth sticking around? Do you want to tell me how bad it was? Uh, it was 67% on most of our cows. <clears throat> okay. And so, but you know, we gave them that and that, that included the heifers too. So that included, that was heifers, that was cows, that was, um, some animals that have not been transitioned over to like this kind of intensive grazing management yet. And that was on some properties that also have not been adapted yet. Properties that are currently transitioning from a conventional grazing to, you know, trying to, trying to get the right, the right grazing management in. And so, but I think it, it made the decision for us. We knew we were going to have to call and rather than looking at them and saying, well, phenotypically we like this one and not this one and making these just kind of obscure decisions. You know, we, we let, we let the environment make that decision for us. And I think it'll pay off in the long run. Yeah. I haven't checked mine yet. Um, and I expect my results will probably be right around where you're at. Yeah. One Maybe. of our ranches was higher. It was, it was like 78 or 80%, I think. And, well, we, um, set a customer cows. Now listeners, keep in mind, I've got three customers. So only the person that actually knows the numbers knows who I'm talking about. Um, they did 76% on a very low input program. Yeah. And I don't think that's really far off from where any of the neighbors were. I mean, yeah. a few points lower, but I think a lot of the neighbors were rolled low mid eighties this year because, yeah. because hot and dry. So you don't know, take that for what you will. Everybody wants 95. Herds, well, and some of these herds are, um, so our cattle were on very conventional management and, you know, four years ago. They were yeah. on 90 day breeding seasons and most of them were on 60 days last year. Almost everybody I think was on 60 days last year. And then we put them on 45 this year. And again, these aren't, this isn't, these aren't herds that are really adapted yet and exactly what we want yet. We're still trying to get there. And so to put that much pressure on them, I'm not surprised at all, but I mean, I'm not upset about it either. And I, I don't think we have to make any excuses about it because I mean, i, I that's how, that's how you find your top end. But pull the rug out from under them and see what swims. Right. Well, so. We got to wrap this up. We do. We've been here a while. Yeah. We've been here a while. We haven't talked about anything as usual. So we'll just have to do another one. Um, where can people find you? Um, online. Go to Noble Research Institute. Um, you can find my information there. Feel free to reach out. And, um, we have a newsletter called noble rancher. I would encourage everybody to subscribe to you. I actually just had an article come out about, um, cattle impacts on soil disturbance. And so we put out a newsletter every week and there's, um, really great information in there. And so 
I would do that. Um, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok. Just look up Noble Research Institute and we are active um, on all of those platforms. You're forgetting your YouTube channel. We do have a YouTube channel, but I'm not on that. So, I mean, you know, but it's I good think, information. I, say I, I think me, but yeah, that's right. We are on YouTube and we have a docu-series right now. Um, so every two weeks, I think is the schedule. Um, there's a new episode of Regenerating the Ranch where we are um, show full transparency showing um, Noble's transition over to regenerative management on our ranches. And so those are about 15 minutes a piece. And you can see all of our ranch managers and different ranch staff um so lots lots of good information there you're right all right cool any anything else you want to shout out any place you want to drive traffic anybody you want to say hi to man i think that's it this has been a blast though thanks for thanks for having me on here this has been fun yeah good luck editing this edit what are you talking about <laughs> like this you is have to make get... me look smart you already I your job you already look smart. Like, I'm just going to throw an intro on it, throw the outro and blend in some music, and we're just going to roll. Sounds great. Sounds great. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing you in January. That'll be a lot of fun, too. Oh, it will be a lot of fun. We'll we'll make sure it is a lot of fun. That's uh, Soil Health U. Um, there is a link to that. Or you can... Let's see. What am I going to do? Um, check the show notes. My link tree. There should be a link on my link tree to the Kansas Soil Health Events calendar. It's where... It's a good, good, good place for everybody to find out about soil health events. And it's not just for events in Kansas. We're trying to make that a, they're trying to make that kind of a central hub for, for events. And if you click the right buttons, you can actually add that to your Google calendar. So I have all that crap on my Google calendar already. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. All right. That's it. Sounds great. Have a great week, gang. Hey, (laughs) we'll see you later. This episode has been sponsored by C90 Ocean Minerals. Visit C90.com to find a distributor near you or call to request a quote today. That's S-E-A-90.com. And don't forget to mention that Ranching Reboot sent you. Have a great week, y'all.